Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Big Chief with a badge, a cattle prod and a head on a stick. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's another day in hell for Theresa May as she heads over to Brussels for a series of pointless meetings with people who care not a jot for the hard work she's doing, for the situation she is in, or for the people of the country she represents. Yesterday's outburst from Donald Tusk, the President of the European Council, followed by Guy Verhofstadt, who helpfully added that if Brexiteers did end up in hell, uh, they would probably divide it, have not been terribly helpful to the whole process, although some people today uh, are saying they are working as the best recruitment sergeants the Brexiteers could ever possibly want. Two weeks ago, I said there was no point in Theresa May going to Brussels, only to experience more humiliation and absolutely no new concessions. At 11 o'clock, she's meeting with Jean-Claude Juncker. It's always best to see him before lunch. But seriously, what is the point of it all? I said she'd be better off telling them to come to London. 03444991000, an interesting day ahead. We'll bring you all of it as it happens. Coming up, we'll also be finding out how it's possible for the maniacs running HS2 to create a brand new station in West London at a cost of one billion pounds. That's right, one billion pounds. And worse than that, we'll meet the fraudsters and crooks who have stolen over 1.25 billion from the NHS in one year alone. Surely there's a better way to safeguard public money than this, isn't there? 0344 499 1000. And later on, we'll also tell you why ear contact might be better than eye contact. And in the context of our radar figures and the listening figures going up, 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 I think that's a brilliant start. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So Theresa May, uh, having had her little trip to Northern Ireland, having popped back to London for the black and white ball last night, where the great and the good of the Tory party all sort of danced around together and pretended uh, they all liked each other, which is what they like to do at these occasions, collecting money uh, and raising morale for the party. She's off now to Brussels to meet up with Donald Tusk and uh, Jean-Claude Juncker. Now, it's going to be rather interesting, considering what Tusk said yesterday, just before this show finished at about midday, uh, when he came out and said there should be a special place in hell for those Brexiteers who 
organise Brexit without a clue as to how it was all going to be done. Some people think he said the right thing. Some people think uh, that he was, in fact, just pointing out the bleeding obvious that basically nobody in the parliamentary body of the Houses of Parliament knows what is going on. However... It's the arrogance with which he says it, the way that he speaks about Britain as if Britain is some kind of state of Europe and uh, run by Europe and the citizens of uh, this country are in fact citizens of Europe, none of which is true. The big problem, of course, is the backstop, the Northern Ireland backstop and the border problem as well. Let's talk to Oliver Wright, policy editor at The Times, who wrote a very interesting piece the other day about electronics and uh, high-tech borders and uh, how that could all work. Oliver, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thank morning. you very much indeed for joining us. Your piece the other day was fascinating in as much as it was a kind of technological solution to the Northern Ireland problem. Can you talk us through it slightly and give us a, a sort of a, a layman's guide? <laughs> it's hard. It's really complicated. But there is a way in which you could avoid a hard border in Ireland. I mean, not using kind of technology that we've never heard of before that haven't been invented before, but by using systems which are used in other countries, such as on the American border and on the Canadian border, and taking them one step further. So basically, a company who wants to sell a widget between Northern Ireland and the South would go online, they would declare that they wanted to send that widget to the South, they would get permission to send it to the South, and everyone would look at it and make sure that was okay. Uh, it would cross through the border, there wouldn't be any checks. Um, and then if they wanted to you know, check that widget to make sure it complied with the rules, they'd either do it um, at the point where it was sent or the point where it was arrived. And you know, there'd be occasional spot checks here and there um, to make sure that people weren't lying. But you, the point being, you wouldn't need physical infrastructure at the border. Now, what's interesting when you talk to people is... Um, most people accept that it is potentially doable. Mm. It's not. It's not beyond the realms of you know realms of possibility. Right. But and here's the big problem: you don't know how long it's going to take you to be able to set up those systems. You know, I know, probably every listener knows that this country has a pretty rubbish track record of big IT projects. They usually um, <laughs> take years. Sad but true. Yeah. Um, so you can't just say we we will get this ready in two years, which is what. Yeah, what they're trying to say at the moment. Um, it's just, it's not, it's not feasible to make that kind of commitment. It also would require quite a lot of negotiation with Ireland, with Brussels, to make sure that everyone who had ac- needed access to it had access to it, um, that it worked, you could prove that it worked, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the point that Europeans make and people who want sort of ardent Brexiteers make, they, yeah, in the long run, this, you know, could work. But what the hell it isn't, it isn't a backstop, because a backstop by very nature is something you know is going to work. Um, but the also, weird thing about the backstop is that it's a kind of construct, isn't it? It's something which you can't really see, you can't really touch, you can't really understand. And I think for an awful lot of people, they hear this phrase backstop, and they don't really know what it is, because all we keep hearing no. from both sides is that, well, of course, we'll never institute this, we don't need it, but we just want to have it there. Yeah, I mean, you're right, it is It is difficult to grasp. I mean, I guess the best way of trying to explain it is, you know, if you've got two different systems, um, which you will have after Brexit, two different sets of rules and regulations, how do you ensure that, you know, Northern Ireland um, and the Republic can trade as frictionlessly as, 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 as possible? So basically the point of the backstop is until you've got something else, um, you say that both those systems have to be the same. I mean, that that is the point of it. There can't be a difference in it. Um, and that's what, of course, enrages the Brexiteers because, you know, they feel that it's, A, sort of splitting up the United Kingdom or 
be potentially keeping the whole of the United Kingdom um, having to follow Brussels rules and regulations right. indefinitely. I mean, there are those people I've spoken to, as I'm sure you have, Oliver, who say that there are already mechanisms in place between the North of Ireland, Northern Ireland and, and the Republic in terms of different levels of tax, different levels of VAT, that kind of thing, which already have to be kind of almost electronically worked out. The problem seems to be, I suppose, when uh, we leave the European Union, there needs to be something better than that. Yeah, because things will change much more than they are at the moment. I mean, there are differences, but they're not, to be honest, huge. And you know, people turn a bit of a blind eye if they don't if they don't if they don't work out, because by and large, Britain and the rest of Europe are are, are pretty much aligned. But here's a here's a real problem. Um, say we leave the European Union, um, we sign a trade deal with America. As part of that, we agree to take um, you know. Hormone changed beef, which we might do. Yeah. Um, you know, there's an argument to say, why not? If you were a smuggler and you've got a consignment of cheap beef coming from America, it's quite a lucrative thing to come and take that beef, um, send it to Northern Ireland, pass it off as sort of prime Irish um, organic fillet, and then pass that across the border and sell it into the rest of Europe. I mean, it's not beyond the wit of criminals. But wouldn't it? Yeah, but, but would it not be first tested at its point of entry to the UK, i.e., at the port? Yeah, you would. You, but it would be allowed into the UK, right? And then it could travel freely from the UK into the Republic of Ireland. Uh-huh. So what you're saying, and if we had lesser controls on our foodstuffs, that could happen. Yeah, and but I mean, why would we though? That's the other point I would ask. I heard uh, Julia Hartley Brewer this morning talking to somebody who was going on about you know the standard of, of, of food hygiene and the standards which which we have got from the European Union. But she quite yeah. rightly pointed out we've had the you know we had the horse uh, scandal. And, and we had CJD, we had all sorts of things going backwards and forwards across the channel, um, you know, when we were in the European Union. So, you know, these things can happen. Yeah, but the difference between that is that's a sort of, yeah, that's a health problem and this is a, this is a bit of criminality. Yeah. Um, and you have to, you know, you have to have systems in place for, you know, trying to, trying to stop it. Right. Um, I mean, the other and- thing that shocks me in your piece... Uh, well, it didn't mm. shock me exactly, but you know, you talk about the the difficulty of having a hard border on the basis that there's paramilitary operations who are involved largely in organised crime, and so that would make it difficult to make a hard border there because they would somehow not like it. But it seems mad, does it not, to say, well, because we've got criminality, we can't police it? Well, I mean, we've got sort of forty years of history in Ireland, which shows that we can't. Um, I mean, the danger is in not being sort of, you know. Not, not taking the sort of extreme position mm. of either side. Here's the difficulty. Yeah. You start off and with this system and you send out customs officers to you know, check on uh, a consignment of, of goods with a bit of intelligence and they realise that actually um, there's paramilitary involvement. Now, do you send those customs officers out unarmed? Do you send them with police who are armed? The danger is not that all of a sudden you're going to have you know, big checkpoints between the north and south of Ireland on day one. The danger is that things just get progressively worse. And over a period of sort of three, five, ten years, that kind of infrastructure gets put in place because one person gets killed. Then the people who do the customs checks quite rightly say, well, I'm not doing that anymore. Mm. Um, you know, no, I get that. But, but, it, but also the Good Friday Agreement presumably did not uh, anticipate or did not want to have paramilitary organisations who are effectively beyond the law. You know, we should be going in and busting them up, shouldn't we? Um, and I know really you're difficult. going to say, well, we tried that and it didn't work very well, but it's still not a reason to let them get on, get on with their work in a, in, well, in a mean, criminal you know, way. Yeah, but it's not just paramilitaries. It's 
the rest of the population as well who are going to be affected by that. If you wanted to, you know, wanted to deal with that, maybe the best thing to do would be to put up a hard border in the first place. Yeah, but, well, maybe yeah, it would. I've been, well, you know, I've been over those borders ever since I was a kid, and I tell you, um, it made a huge difference to people in Ireland, the north and south of Ireland, that those borders came down and life turned to normal. And, yeah. you know, if the argument is, well, yeah, let's go back to the days of the Troubles, it's fine, but I'm not sure many people would agree with that. Oh, no, that's not what I'm suggesting. What I am suggesting, though, is that, yes, it may be a special case, but we have to be a bit careful, I think, looking into the future and saying, well, of course, we can't change any of this uh, for fear of upsetting the paramilitaries and for fear of creating a violent world uh, because they are threatening that. And that's not really the way to deal with that, surely. I think the danger is, and I think it's a big danger, and that we don't, in in England as such, don't see this as much, that... People in Ireland on both sides, and not just not you know not the extremes on both sides, see Brexit as yet another example of England not giving a damn about Ireland. That we see it as a problem, not our problem, their problem. But they would rightly point out, well, you know, Brexit was something you decided to do, and it has huge consequences for us. Mm. Um, and you have some degree of responsibility to try and you know keep things as they are because you know they haven't been bad. You know, last 10, 15, 20 years. Life in Northern Ireland has completely transformed the people who live there. And their point, which is not completely unreasonable, is, well, you've done Brexit. If you're going to send us back to 30 years into the past, that's not entirely fair. No, indeed. But you could also say, if you were being charitable to the British government of the time, that it was down to the British government negotiating that peaceful solution to the problems that they had in Ireland for a very, very long time. And in the end... So you, the, second um, thing you could, the second thing you could say, though, that the reason they were able to do that was partly because of Britain's membership of the European Union. Well, partly because of the fact that they devolved power into Northern Ireland as well, so that Sinn Féin could have a political voice other than yeah, just a, a couple of, of empty course. seats in Westminster, which, of course, they've now decided not to bother using. <laughs> they never know, did. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's, no, I don't mean the ones in London. I mean the ones in Stormont. You know, they haven't well, had a government there for a long time. Yeah, but that's not entirely just Sinn Féin. That's both sides. Oh, of course it is. Of, no, of course. Of but what I'm, what I'm um, saying, yeah, but what I'm saying is, is there's a lot of things at work here, and there's a lot of tails wagging a lot of dogs. And I just think that you know, I've spoken to many HGV drivers who call this show who say that they drive through borders all the time in Europe, and they get called to the side and they get inspected because they have to show they've got the right papers when they're going between France and Spain, and when they're going between uh, Spain and uh, um, sorry, from France to Germany, you know, yeah. Germany into Italy. There's all kinds of border checks through. Europe, it's not as if you know this is some kind of terrible, you know, whited sepulchre that we can't even look at. Yeah, no, I mean, as I say, going back to the beginning, I think you know, a technological solution is possible, and it's not something that you know the European Union would be particularly opposed to. It's mm. just a question of can you guarantee it? And I think the answer to that is probably not. Yes, um, and therefore, you know, is the backstop that bad? I think you're right, most people don't understand it um but i mean here's the other thing um which you miss in all this from what you hear from the dup is that the backstop would be brilliant for business in northern ireland um and actually potentially quite bad for business in the republic of ireland Mm. because business in northern ireland would be able to trade freely with the rest of europe and have full access to the british market as well so if you were a firm based in you know, the Republic of Ireland, you wouldn't have that same access to the British market necessarily. So you might actually decide to up sticks and relocate your business to Northern Ireland mm. because it would be it would be more sensible for you to do so. <laughs> well, this is so, the thing. I mean, there are so many permutations, Oliver, and, and thank you so much for explaining it to us. We've got to let you go. But but in the end, Oliver Wright, policy editor at the Times there, in the end, it's a choice, is it not, between practicality, ideology, and what is possible and what is not possible. And that's what everybody has to do. Everybody has to get their heads together and work it all out. And instead of taking positions 
uh, which they will not move on. And that includes uh, Monsieur Tusk uh, and Monsieur Barnier and Monsieur Juncker. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do to get on this show. It's very simple. All you've got to do is call us 0344 499 1000. Join the growing band of listeners. Uh, join the growing band of people that enjoy uh, having a good time on the radio as opposed to a miserable time, uh, which is what you get in other places. Here at Talk Radio, we believe in the power of positivity. Uh, we told Theresa May uh, not to bother going to Brussels because that would be a negative experience for her. Uh, and I imagine that is exactly what it's going to be. We're going to come to your calls in a moment. We've just been talking about the incredible fraud uh, that's been taken out again. Against uh, the NHS, 1.25 billion quid every single year. Uh, but some of you want to still talk uh, about the European situation as well. But what about this incredible story that we haven't mentioned yet, apart from in the news, about all horse racing actually uh, being cancelled today across the United Kingdom due to an outbreak of equine flu? Apparently, uh, humans are not at risk, but they can be carriers of it. And they're going to decide later on tonight whether to cancel all the horse racing tomorrow as well. Now, I know uh, you may not be interested in horse racing, but it is a massive business in this country generating an awful lot of money and there'll be millions probably billions lost as a result of this so we may revisit that coming up a little bit later on let's go to the phones though richard is in manchester hello richard oh good morning mike morning Thanks very much for taking my call not a call not at all what'd you like to say um on um sorry i'm a bit nervous at the moment Don't on, be. on um saturday i listened to uh, lord adonis mm. uh, along with Nigel Farage, and they were having a bit of a, a do at each other, as they normally do. Yeah. Um, and um, the, the question of uh, somebody getting shot in Ireland, which can happen in any country in the world, in any city in the world, at any one given time, mm. a bomb going off as though, oh, you know, he was stirring it up, in my humble opinion, yes. uh, with the Irish. I've got a lot of Irish friends. They don't see this. Nobody's doing it. What, what they're going to do is eventually they're going to have an all-island, and that will come in 10 or 20 years' time. Yeah. But nobody's pushing it. And I was waiting for the first politician to get on, and it happened to be Lord Adonis. <laughs> well, do you know what's interesting as well, Richard, is I'm fascinated by this theory that we can't put a border in Ireland because the paramilitaries won't allow it. Well, I'm sorry. I don't know the last time that we obeyed any kind of criminal organisation and didn't do something because the criminals didn't want us to. I couldn't agree with you more. There's nothing going on in Ireland. There's the odd bomb. That happens all over the world. Yeah. There's the odd shooting. That happens all over the world. But these people are creating, like Varadka, in my opinion, mm. he's been promised, and when I talk to my friends when they come across to the football, he's going to go to Brussels and he's going to have a big position in Brussels when all this is over. But you know what, Mike? I speak to an awful lot of people. I'm 75 now, but I was in business for a long time. Mm. And I say, how are you doing? Do you know? Everybody's doing better. Everybody's doing well. This fear project of no planes flying and we can't get things through the tunnel into... It's absolute nonsense. And 17.4 million people voted. Mm. The most important thing to come out of the EU. You've heard this many, many times, so I won't labour that. But that is a democratic project. We did it. And the people like Tony Blair... Um, and, and the people like Adonis. Yeah. My brother's got a parrot, and when Adonis comes on, it says, oh, no, not him again. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. What's the parrot's name, Richard? Oh, I, I 
think he's going to call him Adonis now. They Is he? Change his name. Fantastic. <laughs> We've got to get him on. Listen, we must get him on. We want to hear that uh, parrot saying that. That'd be brilliant. Thanks for your call, Richard. Don't be nervous. Call us back again another time. 0344 499 Wouldn't that be great? A parrot called Adonis uh, that uh, criticises himself whenever he comes on. Tremendous. Let's talk to Daniel in Epsom. Hi, Daniel. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Yeah, very well, sir. What do you want to say? When I saw Tusk give that speech yesterday, yeah. and he had a go at Leavers and Conservative Leavers, and he also had a go at Remain, the Remain campaign. Mm. Do you know, when, when you bear in mind that the EU have actually been funding the... <laughs> it's crazy to say this out loud, but they've been funding the so-called People's Vote, right? right. Hoping, that, hoping that we would do what Ireland and Denmark did. So mm. what they do, they had a legitimate vote, and they said, right, let's spend loads of money on a campaign, tell them they're all fools and idiots and they're all wrong, um, and spend all this money. What we'll get, we'll, we'll 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 pressure them from inside with their own MPs and dignitaries, yeah. and we put enough pressure on they'll give in. Mm. But the thing about and in, in Ireland and Denmark they did give in and they they won the the, the, the so-called second vote. Yeah. But I think something about British people, where the more you say you're wrong, you 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 you, you didn't know what you were doing. The more that you say that, the more and when I hear to say that, I think oh, the more I want to leave. And I think that's something to do with British people. I don't think we're as easily, um, you know, exploited. No, as, as, no, I think you're right. Places. In fact, I was reading a piece this morning, one of the newspapers, in which they said that, that Tusk's statement yesterday and, and what was then uh, said by that uh, that former Belgian prime minister as, as well, Guy Verhofstadt, uh, in which he said that, well, if the Brits went to uh, uh, to hell, they'd probably divide it. These are actually recruit, recruiting sergeants for Brexit because everyone that I know that sees them talking like that wants to get out even quicker. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Even Remainers are going, I mean, look, even if you're not a Conservative, I am, I'm a Conservative member, but the way that they treated our Prime Minister in, in, in my way, in, in my eyes, is absolutely tantamount to, I think it was disgusting the way they treated her when she went there. Yeah. Whether you're a big Theresa May fan or not, when I saw that on the TV, I thought, that's bang out of order. And loads and loads of people, proud British people like me, watched it and thought, mm. right, we're leaving. Yeah. We are not happy anymore. And look at the club as a whole. If we weren't members now, right, and you looked at the club, you wouldn't want to join it. No, you wouldn't. You know, there's nations, most of them, I mean, my family, a lot of my family are from Southern Europe. Basically, they, Southern Europe and Greece, they don't want to pay tax, right? They, they basically want to work for the state, get, get a lot of right. high money, retire early, and they don't want to pay tax. It's like a national sport in Italy, not right. paying tax. So <laughs> and Greece is the some, same, isn't it? Yeah, when you go to some shops, there's a price if you pay with a card, and there's a price if you pay with the cash. On the, on the till, there are two separate prices, basically everywhere you go. Mm. And so... You know, if this if we weren't in the EU, we wouldn't sign up for it now. And and I just think Brexit's what you get when you force mass immigration on a nation and you hoodwink them into political union. You get you get Brexit. And I'm afraid that it's been a long time coming. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Very good call indeed, Daniel. Thank you very much indeed. Daniel there in Epsom. A couple of great tweets. Rob says, got to be a Perrier coming from Richard and his parrot impression. Hugh says, uh, you should investigate the scandal of NHS staff contracts. For example, on-call staff on sick leave, aside from their sick pay, keep their on-call allowance. Their stand-in uh, is paid a wage and the on-call allowance, four wages per staff member. Well, that's incredible, isn't it? Uh, here's one from uh, uh, Ganes who says, there's no government department that works. It's willful neglect because no one can be that stupid. Not not too stupid that the establishment conned us into paying for another government, the EU. More MPs, more bureaucracy, and the EU will dole out a few pounds back. No EU, yes to a brand new party. 
Well, you have to say, uh, if I went out into the street right now with a microphone and asked people who their MEP was, I doubt whether any of them would actually know. Uh, Francis says on the subject of the NHS, a friend's mum went into hospital on Tuesday with a chest infection. He went to see her on Wednesday. She's now got a broken collarbone uh, after she fell on the ward. She hadn't even been there 24 hours. Listen, I'm not in the business of bashing the NHS, but there's some problems there that they really need to get to grips with. Losing £1.25 billion a year, albeit that they're catching some of these people, they're not getting the money back. You can't afford to lose that kind of money. That is absolute madness. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to talk about fish and chips. Not least because, of course, uh, we have mentioned this in the past, fish may well be in some way a beneficiary, uh, if you'll pardon the expression, of Brexit because we might be able to fish more, we might be able to fish uh, for more fish, we might be able to fish in better parts of the sea, Uh, we may not have to share those parts of the sea, we shall see, but what we have been told uh, is that there's nothing wrong with eating fish and chips as long as you cut the the size of it down to 600 calories. Let's talk to our favourite nutritionist, Monica Price, to find out whether there's any point in making fish and chips smaller. Monica, very good afternoon to you, welcome. Hello, Mike. How are you today? Very Let's well. Have some fish and chips, shall we? Well, do you, know, do you know, we talked about fish and chips a few days ago in another way. And by the time yes. I'd finished the conversation, I was gagging for some fish and chips. So it does, <laughs> it does tend to have that effect, doesn't it? Oh, it does. You know, I just, I mean, I love fish and chips. And, and you know, this is, I, mean, I don't know if you know this, but we've got about 10,500 chip shops in the UK. And we spend £167 million every year on, on a fish and chip meal, which, you know, which on, on average um, it equates to about £1.2 billion. Yeah. So we eat, sorry, about £167 million. So we spend about £1.2 billion. So it's a huge amount. People don't realise how many fish and chip shops are. Yeah. You know, we actually have in the UK. And do you know what, Mike? It is actually a very healthy and nutritious meal. You know, it's it's one of those meals that is you know it's, it's been here uh, well for as long as I can remember, and it's a very traditional British meal, of course. And you know, but it's high in protein, fibre. 
you know, it's got lots of vitamins and iron. But, you know, it's one of those things now, but I don't know about you, but my fish and chip shop, the portions have just got bigger and bigger and bigger. There's no doubt about well, it. Well, do you know, it's funny you, know. you say that because I've, I've, I've been, I, I don't eat as much fish and chips as I, as I used to do when I was living in Scotland. For some reason, I liked eating it more up there. I think it was the yeah. cold weather. I but, think it was the cold weather. Yeah. yeah. But also, you'd get this, occasionally say you'd ask for a large fish and chips, right? And they'd give you two massive fish. And you just think, what do you need to do that for? You know, that's just too much food. Exactly, It's crazy. And also, you know, the thing is about it, I don't know, my local fish and chip shop, the portion of chips, a small portion of chips could actually feed four people. You know, so this this survey they've done is absolutely right. You know, we've got to work with our our local suppliers, our local um, food outlets, because the Public Health England, as we've spoken about before, wants us to get down to having 400 calories for breakfast, 600 for lunch and 600 for dinner well we're not going to do that when the average fish and chip portion at the moment is about a thousand calories mm. and of course you know they're trying now to get it down to 600 calories which will be about five ounce fish and five ounce of chips um, my fish and chip shop for instance and many fish and chip shops do Mike they sell the smaller portions which is a great idea kids portion pensioners portion I don't know whatever you want to call it but that's a really <laughs> good idea yeah, heart you know, attack um, portion I, 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 exactly yeah, it's, uh, because, you know, the, the size of the fish and the size of the chips is going to have a significant impact on the amount of calories you're consuming. And also, um, it's worth to, to note, Mike, it's the oil as well that they're using. Now, in Scotland, for instance, they're quite keen on beef dripping um, as, a, as, a, as a way of cooking their chips. And, of course, you know, this is very calorific. And, you know, most, most fish and chip shops, they'll use sunflower or vegetable oil. Um, rapeseed oil is used by some as well, and yes. that's a really good oil mm. um so that will be a good thing to do and also um it's the size of the chips you know actually people think oh i'll have a thin chip in the in the pretense that they think oh that actually is going to be better for them yes. but it's not um because well it's a bit like do you know um i've had conversations with with people about the size of the plate for example that you serve yes. your dinner on at home if you use yes. slightly smaller plates and slightly smaller portions you know it's a lot easier to to uh, uh, to get full up without realizing you're eating less Absolutely. I've been sort of banging on about portion sizes for, for, mm. for about at least two years now because, you know, we have our portion sizes have really got out of control. Yeah. And, you know, when, when you go to any fish and chip shop, I would... I can't believe that any of anybody that listens to the show goes to a fish and chip shop and has a, like a small portion of chips that's not kind of overflowing onto yeah. there. They kind of fill up a plate and then they they put it on and they might put a few few on for good measure. So I think what we've got to do is, you know, if this is going to work, Mike, which is going to be very difficult, it's very difficult to kind of, you know, legislate this really because who's going to actually, you know, watch this? Who's going to regulate it? But we've got to work with the wholesale suppliers. That's the I think that's the only way forward. Working with the people that supply you know particularly fish and chip shops of course is what we're talking about today so look at the suppliers of the fish look at the suppliers who supplies the potatoes work with them to kind of look at portion sizes but of course this is going to involve money you know because the bottom line is they make a lot of money i mean fish and chips now i went down to uh, where was i in the summer devon somewhere in devon and it was astronomical for a portion of chips down there so you know because it's a seaside resort it was height of summer um well you know, i see so pubs in i mean i see pubs in london right advertising yeah. on a board outside 
and you'd think yeah. that, that there would be a great deal. Fifteen ninety nine for fish and chips. Yeah, and you go, exactly. well, why are you advertising that? That's ridiculous. Ridiculously yeah, that's expensive. Just, it's, a, it's a crazy price. You know, the average price is probably about four or five pounds for a fish and chip portion now. Yeah. So, you know, but, it, but again, if you go to any kind of perhaps, you know, uh, sort of like a restaurant, a fancy restaurant or a seaside resort, they tend to be more because, of course, it, it's popular, particularly yeah. in the summer. Where but, are you, you on know, the mushy peas front? Oh, do you know, the mushy peas, they're actually mushy peas. They're not so calorific as, um, you know, ordinary peas, as mm. tin peas. Um, and, of course, they've got no fat. So as far as... Having Haven't they got marrow? Peas, Haven't they got marrow fat in them? They, yes, they have, got, they have got the marrow fat. Yes, so some of them will have that in. But, again, it's that, again adding that to your meal, so if you have fish and chips and some mushy peas, well, that is actually beneficial for you mm. because the, when the mushy peas go into your, into your gut, they actually work with the fat from your fish and chip to help break that down so that's you know it's always a good thing to have some peas if you can but of course you know you can have all sorts of things with with uh, fish and chips now like you can have your chips you know fried in in now what's, what's the oil that makes it very orange there's a there's a there's a way some fish and chop shops they make it very orange oh, really? and there's also they they kind of deep fry it you know and then they'll deep fry it again so it's deep fried twice well these are the things that are just crazy you know but but you know it is interesting to see when, when they did this study, because obviously there is there is a big, again, as I say, 10,500 10, chip shops in the UK. Yeah. There's only about 1,200 McDonald's and only uh, about just under 900 KFC. So, you know, we, we it's still a, a massive amount of chip shops that people are going to. Yeah. And if we're spending all this money, then we've got to try and do something. So I would suggest to people, just, you know, go for the smaller portion. Ask for a smaller yeah. portion. Don't, this is, it's a few... Well, how about just don't have the chips? I was at a party the other, I was at a party the other night, Monica, where yeah. uh, they were walking around with, you know, trays of hot food and they had the usual yes. chicken satay, yeah. that kind of thing. And they had yes. battered fish in little, you know, little cut up into little pieces. But no, yes. but no chips it was great yeah Absolutely. You know, so if you're going to go no chips or fewer chips, and of course, you know, other, the other thing you can do, which sometimes I do if, if the batter's particularly thick and it's quite heavy, because sometimes the batter can be quite heavy, you know, just don't eat the batter or don't eat all of the batter. You know, just by doing that, you're still having the pleasure of the fish and chips, but you're just not eating the amount of fat. And it's the fat, obviously, that's going to be, you know, the saturated fat in particular is going to be quite harmful to your health. So, you know, just by doing Doing that, just perhaps just saying to yourself, okay, I'm going to take half of the batter off and just eat half of the batter on this fish. Go for the or go for the smaller sizes. As you say, don't go for the chips or share the chips. It just can have such a dramatic effect. Mm. But the portion sizes have definitely got to be addressed. So I think it's a, it's been a good study. I think it was Newcastle. It was bizarrely because I mean Newcastle is definitely a place where you you, you expect exactly. to see a lot of fish and chips being eaten. Exactly. Listen, got to leave it there, Monica. Thank you very much indeed. Paul says we buy one portion of chips and two pieces of fish for a family of four. It's a bargain. Please don't make them reduce the size. Well, as long as you're sensible, Paul, that's a very good idea. Monica Price, a nutritionist there, just saying, take the smaller sizes. Don't, you know, supersize it. It's not a good idea. It's not worthwhile, for heaven's sake. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
Now, uh, there's a very, very big piece of uh, uh, journalistic work in the Daily Mail today, billing for work on dead patients, stealing vital equipment, even robbing a charity fund. As it's revealed, $1.25 billion is stolen from the health service every year. Meet the NHS fraudsters, and they've got a sort of rogues gallery of pictures of people who have stolen various amounts of money in some very, very large numbers, by the way. And it's all down to a show called Fraud Squad NHS, which is on uh, BBC One uh, over the course of this week. We're going to talk now, though, to Sue Frith, who's the CEO of NHS Counter Fraud Authority, the CFA, because this is really quite a shocking situation. And, and Sue, I have to say a very good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. This really is awful, isn't it? Yeah, good morning, Mike. I'm delighted to be here to talk to the, about to the, your viewers about this problem. Um, it's a huge problem for the NHS. Um, we want to root out all fraudsters from the system. It's a despicable crime. Mm. And we really want to prevent people from committing crime as well as catching those that, that, that do it. No, quite. I mean, I'm not going to go into each particular case here, but there are people who have taken £600,000 out, £1.3 million, you know, 655000 here, 700000 there. I mean, it seems incredible um, that they can take out that amount of money, but the, the, the trick to it seems to be that they're actually people doing legitimate business in most cases, aren't they, with the NHS? Um, anybody can commit fraud against the NHS. Some of the uh, profiles on the BBC programme are of people who work within the NHS or outside of the NHS, but it can be contractors, it can be uh, professionals, it can be organised crime groups. I think all of those have been uh, covered on the programme. Um, but most, of, most people who work in the NHS are honest, so we really want to get to rooting out the people who are dishonest. Yes, quite. I mean, let's look at one particular case, uh, and this is a guy called Daniel Dreghorn, who was a supervisor uh, at Ayrshire Central Hospital's decontamination unit. Um, he, an audit discovers that more sets of surgical equipment had gone missing, and it all pointed to him basically selling it on the black market in the US and Hong Kong. Now, you're quite right to say that, that any organisation can be a victim of crime and a victim of fraud, but does it not suggest that maybe the supervision on some of these people is not quite what it ought to be? Um, that case in Scotland, our colleagues in Scotland in their NHS uh, fraud uh, department mm. uh, dealt with that case. And yes, I think supervision might be part of it. But fraud is a hidden crime and people are tricky. Fraudsters are trying to hide what they do. So it's not always obvious. Yeah. Uh, and that's the challenge that we face, trying to find these people. And it's really important that where people see something suspicious that they actually do report it so if somebody's working with that, an individual and they see something that's untoward they should report it to us sure. or you know that's where that's how we find out it's going on mm. i think people are very uncomfortable in in pointing a finger and we want to try and change that and say you know you can do that confidentially report it to us on our mm. confidential reporting line and then we can actually make a difference because of course the fact that you have caught these people is is proof that you are catching them you know so i'm not going to yeah. have a go at you for not being vigilant enough but what i'm saying is is that you know in every organization you get people you know working here without wishing to give the game away uh, who'll probably take the odd pen home might even take a couple of uh, sheaves of uh, paper with them you know who knows you know but a lot of companies suffer from from people sort of pilfering stationary amongst other things but but clearly some of the stuff that these guys can get their hands on is worth an awful lot more than that yeah, absolutely. And it's costing the NHS a lot of money. And it is important that systems are tightened, which, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're really looking at prevention uh, strategies as well, trying to implement those across the, the NHS at all, all levels. It's important that people report 
things when they see it, that they try and prevent it. Because catching people at the end of a, of a, of a process and taking them through the courts is, is not the best way to deal with it. We deal with it that way if we, when we need to, but we want to try and prevent fraud as well. Yeah, exactly right. Another case that we've been uh, seeing on the TV uh, is a guy who was a locksmith at the Guy's and St Thomas's Hospitals in London, Andrew Taylor. Uh, he apparently uh, used to exploit his position and charge the NHS markups of up to 1,200%. And, I mean, you'd have to change an awful lot of locks to make 600,000 quid, which is pretty much what he got away with. Yes, absolutely despicable, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really pleased with the, the dedicated professional investigators' work to get that person into court and, and get him um, put the case in front of the court, and he was found guilty. But actually, within the NHS, there are lots of people who work on um, locks. There are lots of locks in buildings in the NHS, so mm. he, he had a legitimate uh, uh, job that was earning him plenty of money, but he wanted more. I yeah. mean, it's, it's a greed situation. It really there. is awful, isn't it? Do you think that people's sort of psychological state of mind on this is because it's such a big organisation, because it is one of the biggest organisations in the world, do they think that people won't notice? Do they think they've got more chance of getting away with it because of, the, of, the, of just the fact that it's such a massive business? Uh, I think they may think that, and I'm here to tell them that we're looking for them and we'll try and find them and prosecute them when we find them. Uh, that's the message I want to, to give out, that it's not, it's, we're not an easy target in the NHS um, and we're really tightening up our systems now. Right. And, I mean, it said in the, in the report that I read that this goes on pretty much year after year after year, the same amount of money, roughly. I mean, what, what do you propose doing to try and reduce the amount of money that's, that's siphoned out of the business? Well, the more we learn about the types of fraud that are happening, the more we can close them down. Um, it's ongoing work. It's a, it's a constant cycle because if we close one area of fraud down, then people who are really targeting uh, criminal activity, they will go for another area. Mm. But we have had uh, some significant su successes uh, since we started as the counter-fraud authority. Okay. And we want to continue that work into the future. And do you work sort of in one place? Do you have operatives all around? I've got this kind of vision now of NHS sort of <laughs> private detectives working undercover in hospitals? Uh, we have uh, a central, uh, three central offices across the country for the national organisation, but also a network of local service people in, in, in trusts locally, and obviously Scotland and, Scotland and Wales have their teams as well. So there are a lot of people around the country looking at this problem and, and trying to deal yeah. with it. But do you think you can get on top of it? I mean, could you reduce the amount that's, that goes missing, I suppose is my question. Yes. I think we can. We have to work with all of the people that work in the fraud arena in the NHS and with, with people generally, put the, all the staff. It's, it's the responsibility of everybody. It's our NHS. Everybody works. Everybody knows somebody who has used or worked in the NHS and we all should be pulling together to really root out these people who are committing crime. Absolutely. And have you been watching the BBC show? Because it started, I think, uh, this week, didn't it? I have. I, I'm really proud of uh, my team. They've done a great job both in dealing with the fraud, um, uh, the cases, and also presenting it in such mm. a professional and effective way. I hope the message goes out to, uh, to everybody that we are here to do this work and we're doing it in a really professional way. Well, good luck to you, Sue, and, and, and keep getting, uh, catching those bad guys. And uh, any time you want us to help you out, by all means, get in touch.
Thank you very much, and thank you to your viewers. Thank you. No problem at all. Sue Frith, thank you very much indeed from Coventry in the West Midlands there talking to us uh, about this show. Fraud Squad NHS, uh, there's another one tonight apparently, but it's quite extraordinary uh, how much money is being siphoned out of this place because you've got, you know, uh, Deborah Hancock's right, and her partner John Lee exploited their positions. She was an NHS manager. He was an IT purchaser in the Northwest. They tricked the NHS into buying computer equipment from companies they secretly owned and marked up the prices by up to 60%. They took 330000 in illegal proceeds from £1 million in sales and they spent the money on property in the Lake District, Dubai and Cyprus. Absolutely incredible. Smartly dressed dentist Dr Joyce Trail uh, exuded professionalism while submitting some 7,000 invoices to the NHS for work, totalling almost 1.4 million quid uh, that she never actually carried out. There were sort of ghost patients and all that kind of thing. It really is amazing. You know, uh, quite often you hear from me uh, that I believe the NHS could be much better run. I'm glad to see they're catching some of these people, but my worry is that there's going to be more of them out there uh, who they're not catching. The other big NHS story that I should mention to you, by the way, uh, before we take more of your call which we'll do very shortly on this number 03444991000 is the extraordinary tale uh, of a boy uh, well not a boy a son uh, a guy who's 48 years of age actually who tried to get from London to Devon where his 77 year old mother had had a fall in her conservatory right he left London uh, he took a bus he took the tube he took two trains he travelled 180 miles he got to his mother's house in Devon before the ambulance did the ambulance station crew turned up after he did, having taken four hours or so to get there. Absolutely extraordinary stuff. How it is that 999 calls are making people wait this long. Seven hours was her total time that she ended up waiting for an ambulance to come, by which stage she was so beyond the pale that she just wanted to die. And he's been talking this morning, Mark Clements is his name, saying this is an absolute travesty. If we can't run the ambulance service properly, what is the point of running it at all? And when you see that £1.25 billion is being stolen from the NHS minimum every single year, you know that it's not being run terribly well. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.